Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Happy Monday. Hope you are doing well. Hope your weekend, Super Bowl or otherwise, was good. And we're grateful to have you start the week with us as we continue through the Gospel of Luke. We're in the 22nd chapter um, as we move through Holy Week. And, and I would say that we're in the part where um, most of what we think of as Holy Week is coming up, although um, Luke does give us some dialogue that kind of extends the narrative. But today we are talking about the Passover supper. Uh, there's a, first a moment of preparation. So we'll just read here beginning in verse 7 for a couple verses, and then we'll talk it through. Uh, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go prepare the Passover meal for us that we may eat it. They asked him, Where do you want us to make preparations? Listen, he said to them, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house he enters. Say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs already furnished. Make preparations for us there. So they went and found everything as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover meal. I, if if this is familiar to you, and it should be if you've grown up in church or been in church for a while, um, th- there's an interesting thing about the stories of Passover that each of them, um, that several of them have this moment where there's a kind of question about what they're doing. We saw a little bit of this with where you're going to get the donkey, but but there's a almost a covert kind of feeling to this. Go ask a certain you're going to see a person, he's carrying water, say this to the the homeowner and they'll show you to the room. It it seems it seems complicated. It it seems it feels like Luke could have just as easily told us they went and found a room and and prepared it. I, I don't know what's at stake in that, Michael. I'm, I'm, it's not clear to me that this is particularly educational. Um, maybe in its day, it meant something. Maybe people knew who these characters were, or maybe the idea of secrecy mattered to the early church, who it was in often case in hiding. But th- this this has an this has a strange feel to it that I don't think of many other stories having in the gospel. And Luke maybe makes it the most mysterious. It, it There's some of this in the other gospels, but th- this seems odd to me. You raise a really interesting point. I don't have an answer, but I want to... I want to maybe point us towards the Passover meal and, and remind us that what the Passover is doing is it's reminding Jews, practicing religious people of their salvation from Egypt. And the Passover is a, is a moment in which God gives very clear and specific instructions to those ancient Israelites. And God says, you need to do these things. And if you do them, uh, then you will your house will be passed over. You will be spared. And part of, if you go back to Exodus and you read that text, part of the value that God communicates to Moses is you need to eat bread that's not leavened. You need to eat food that is ready to be picked up and go. It's a very uh, kind of not comfortable meal because the idea is that it's a mobile meal. It's a meal that you could 
uh, very quickly get out if that is what you're called and, and purpose to do. What I think is interesting about a story like this, Clint, is it it sets a similar kind of tone in the text. There's a kind of uh, maybe to the reader, it, it sounds a little bit like a mystery, but there's a kind of God will provide what you need, even though it's not going to be all laid out perfectly. It's not planned 60 days ahead like a master would plan a party. No, this is a, we're going to trust God and all of the things are going to come together and there will be what we need for a Passover. I'm, I'm not saying that's what Luke's trying to show us, but I just think there is a a kind of connection there to the spirit of the Exodus and the Passover itself. There's a kind of readiness that was required of the ancient Israelites. And here, there's a kind of faith and trust and readiness that, that the disciples are being asked to practice as well. And of course, if you've been in the church for some time, you know that that language actually lives today uh, in our own practice of the Lord's Supper, and I don't want to rush ahead to that, but some of those themes see practice in the church all the way through history up to the present day. And I, I just think in a, in a master storyteller's account like we have from Luke, these details do spark our interest, and rarely, if I think we might argue, never were they unintentional or not thought through. So even if we don't know exactly what's going on here, I, I assure you that Luke is given great thought to how to tell the story. And, and I think there's some elements in here that strike me as really interesting. Yeah, it is intriguing. Does Jesus know this man? Does he just know there's going to be a guy there with water? Is there some plan the disciples... It seems like a lot of secrecy for an event that nearly every Jew in Jerusalem, if not every Jew in Jerusalem, would have been celebrating and preparing for. So uh, let's let's focus. Let's kind of turn that that dial in and focus for a minute on this idea of Passover. So as Michael mentioned, Passover is the, the Jewish remembrance and celebration of what we call that final plague when the Israelites, the Hebrews, are slaves in Egypt, the angel of death comes, and those whose doorposts are marked with the blood of a sacrificed lamb, and the, the language is important because in the instructions they're given, it is to be a lamb without blemish. And that, that sacrificed lamb, whose blood is on the doorpost, causes the angel of death to go over pass over the house and so the egyptian sons are sacrificed are killed but the israelites are saved and in the aftermath of that god through moses institutes this annual celebration of the passover where they are to retell the story and if you've not if it's not something with which you're familiar it would be worth your time to Google Seder Supper, S-E-D-E-R, or Passover meal. Uh, see if you could find the liturgy. It, it is a very scripted meal. Th there is salt uh, and water to symbolize tears. There's horseradish to symbolize bitterness. There's unleavened bread to symbolize the rush uh, to escape Egypt. Every part of the meal is designed to retell the story of deliverance. In fact, and I won't get this, this may not be exactly right, but the Passover meal starts with a liturgy that begins with words very close to, when we were slaves in Pharaoh's Egypt. And so 
each time they celebrate the Passover, they relive and retell that story of God's deliverance. And and this becomes an important backdrop for the gospel story. And we'll we'll talk about that in a moment. But I, I don't know... I don't know what the the Christian equivalent of this is, Michael. I mean, in some ways we could liken it to communion, but it's less occasional. It 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 is more infrequent. Most Christians celebrate communion monthly or quarterly. Um, it, it would be maybe Easter-like in terms of its importance on the calendar, but the the tone would be very different. I'm not sure we have a good equivalent that helps us make sense of this, but it's very hard to understand the nuance of the crucifixion and resurrection stories if you don't have a working understanding of the Passover. Yeah, so to that end, I just want to, we're not going to linger here, but I want to put this up so that you all see this. This is Exodus chapter 12. And we would definitely recommend, as part of the study this week, it would be worth your time going to Exodus chapter 12, seeing this language about verse 5 here, land without blemish, which Clint just mentioned, the doorposts, verse 7. Uh, we're going to have talk about what uh, what uh, you should do with your leaven and your bread. All of this is in there. And, and all of that is to say that while for us that may need some education, we have to remember that the people who received this book from Luke, the, the first disciples were worshiping in synagogues. They were a part of Jewish families and Jewish practice and Jewish life. That the, the earliest Christian church grew up alongside that religious tradition. So these themes and this knowledge, this practice that Clint is talking about, it would have been known to most Christians, certainly as the church was close to its center in Jerusalem, and then as it extended out beyond that time and, of course, became more and more Gentile, then it became more uh, more and more difficult to sort of pass on some of those previous traditions because the Christian traditions themselves began to take root and the church began to have its own practice, liturgies and worship and in, in church. But it's worth all that to say, Clint, it's worth recognizing that the New Testament is full of illusions and references and, and foundations built upon the Old Testament and those stories, the God's salvific work for the people of Israel. And that is a, a huge precursor to the text that we're going to read and this supper that Jesus has with his disciples. I, I don't know that we could overstate how important the Passover context is to the meal that Jesus has with his disciples. It matters. And um, and sometimes we need to sort of educate ourselves or get up to speed to sort of get all of the senses of that. Well, I, I, think, we, I think we drastically undervalue it, Michael. I mean, I, I don't think it occurs to a lot of Christians. And when we talk about the Last Supper, and for us that becomes the occasion of communion, Jesus' Last Supper is a religious feast that is a, that has a very scripted liturgy, including the ingredients and the menu. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is eating the Passover meal, this, the Seder supper, with his disciples. When 
When it says tomorrow, when we read, he took bread and broke it, that bread snapped because it wasn't a loaf. Right. It, it was a wafer because he was using right. unleavened bread. When it says cup, that was the cup that held the salt water, and then the herbs are dipped in it, and then it's filled with wine. That, that th- This is all the context out of which we get our own story, and I, I think far too often we... We underappreciate the context Jesus is in. Jesus institutes what we call the Last Supper at a religious supper. And it, there's layers. And I, and I think, again, knowing that, especially for Matthew, for Luke, Mark, um, John does his own stuff, but... The, the Jewishness and and Jesus' own religious context help tremendously to to clarify and understand the subtext of the stories. And so, th- this idea about preparation—that they're they're making that they're not just showing up; they're they're preparing the Passover meal, and it's in the hands of Peter and John that you know these. There is a solemnness to this that I think we can miss if if we don't try to put a little work in understanding the context. There's a temptation for me in this conversation to rush ahead to the next conversation, which is the meal and, and all of its theological significance. But we would be amiss to do that if we failed to pause long enough to see, to, to your point, Clint, that this meal is a somber meal. It's a remembrance of God's saving, yes, God's might and God's perseverance of his people, yes, but also uh, of death, of being spared from calamity, of the reality of needing to be rescued from subjectivity, of being made subject to, to Pharaoh. And by the way, in Jesus's day, doing so at the in Jerusalem, which is captive to Rome. Once again, the people are experiencing captivity in their own way. So these themes were powerful the night that Jesus gathered before the church came to realize the other layers of which there's an infinite. But before even we got to that, there was already a kind of depth to the preparation for this meal. It it is a solemn meal. And we especially maybe busy Americans, if that's the camp you find yourself in, we find ourselves often rushing from table to table. Sometimes we 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 fail to recognize the substantial providential kind of theological ideas of preparing a feast, of God giving us what we need for that meal. This particular observance would have made that explicit, that that we we need to prepare, but also because in doing so, God has prepared. God's given us what we need. We need to trust God because the God who rescued us then, ergo Exodus, is the God that we call and recognize to be present with us in the now. I, all of that's happening in the preparation of this meal, and and we should see that because it will provide really valuable, important, essential frames to then also see what Jesus does that is act absolutely unique to his observance of that meal and how Christians come to understand it later. Yeah, I, I think in order to understand the new thing Jesus does that we'll look at tomorrow, it it is just helpful to understand 
the old thing that Jesus has done. You know, in in rough numbers, Jesus is in his in his early thirties at this point in the story, and and that means for probably thirty times, Jesus has celebrated this Passover with his mother and father later with his mother when when Joseph dies probably already more than once with his disciples this is not new for Jesus this would have been a part of his annual spiritual life he he would have he would have known the liturgy he would have understood um that this is something that he has done multiple multiple times and yet in this context he approaches it and gives it new meaning a new life, new direction, and for those of us who inherit those new things, new, new at the time, um, I I do think some understanding of the previous things helps deepen our own appreciation for what it is that that we inherit and receive. A detail that strikes me, I don't have an answer to this, Clint, but you know my love for the Gospel of John. It's hard for me to read this text and not have this small, what may be a small detail in verse 10. A man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house. And one of the things that my imagination goes to is, of course, in John, there's a wedding in Cana where water and wine play a very uh, important role in the beginning of Jesus's ministry. Now, that's not to say that that's exactly what's happening here, but these are some of the imaginative places I think that we go when we read the scriptures. We'll, we'll, you might see a detail and wonder, what is that? And for me today in this reading, if I was going to do some further study, I think it would be on that detail. I'd be interested, what, what's going on? What, why follow the person with the jar of water? That's an interesting detail. Well, and, I mean, I, I think strangeness abounds in those couple of verses, Michael, because first of all, you have a man carrying water. Why is that happening? Secondly, he carries the water into the house, but he's not the owner of the house because you're supposed to say to the owner of the house, so is that a servant? It is it, what? I, there's just... There's nothing but question marks in that, and and if they mean something, yeah, I, I I don't know what they are. Maybe maybe there's a Luke scholar out there who will one day find this and help us. But I I think those are head scratchers for me. Head scratchers are most often, I think, opportunities to enter into the text deeper, and I certainly hope that you know we can all avail ourselves of those. Uh, thanks for being with us here today. In many ways, this is a a beginning note of a much deeper song. So I hope that you will join us for the continuance of this study tomorrow. But until then, be blessed, and we'll see you soon. Thanks, everybody.